0: Hello and welcome back. This is the long-awaited return of Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is the first episode we've done in, I think, about a month. So, if you don't remember, last time I was getting ready to do the Frozen Finals. That's the the, the final tournament for the Eastern Hockey League, of which we are very proud. I was very fortunate. It It was earned, but I was also very fortunate. To be able to be on the call for uh, be side for all the EHL games, to do color commentary alongside my '87's broadcast partner and fellow Seton Hall alum Anthony DePaolo for the EHL Premier games. That's our, that's the in some in, in some ways the the lower level, the less experienced level of our league. And Anthony was uh, so kind. And uh, again, it was—he'll be the first one to say—and I'll agree that it was earned. But he was also uh, very nice. And and thanks to Neil Rabin, our associate commissioner, as well for allowing me to do play-by-play for one of the games for the EHLP, and that's uh, perhaps the the pinnacle of my professional career, at least since leaving college. And so I was very, very honored. We had a wonderful time. We had some great games. The I think there was only one game that one one of the two series that uh, in the EHL that did not go the distance in the best of three. That was the Avalanche and the Little Flyers. Still a very well played, thoroughly played series, and it was because of that we got, actually got to go on the ice. A number of us within the EHL and, and, and the staff working that week to, from Neil Ra- Neil Raven to Jeff Mills, who is our uh, color commentator for EHL and public address announcer he's a guy who has done even some NHL games he's phenomenal and he's just a lovely person. I could say that about pretty much anyone I mentioned from uh, Anthony to uh, to uh, Trevor and, and uh, Trevor Blackburn uh, to, to Haley and uh, to uh, Kara uh, to Alexis all these lovely lovely people who I unfortunately get to see. Maybe about one week out of the year, I did get to go up to the Worcester Showcase earlier in the year, but these are just some really just salt of the earth, just lovely people. Uh, to, to our uh, Commissioner Joe Bertagna and uh, just uh, so, uh, to uh, D- Dave at Hockey TV, just uh, lovely, lovely people, and I just had a, a wonderful time. It, it's really one of the, one of the weeks that really brings me out of my shell throughout the week and, and Providence is fr- frankly, it is a, a very very nice city if, you, if you're in the right if you find the right parts. our thank you to the, the people of Providence College who continue to host us. This is my second year doing it in Providence, my third year during the tournament, my third year in the league. and I was very, very honored. And in addition to that, the team that I cover, the New Jersey 87s actually won the EHLP title for the second time in three years and has won a title of any kind in each of the last three seasons. So not to toot my own horn, obviously I'm responsible. Clearly I'm the one on the ice the entire time, but it was an incredible, just a marathon of a game in the final between them and the Railers junior hockey club for which a number of people in our kind of little EHL family work is very close by. But we are just so happy for for the league and for 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 the people we we work with. So I'm just very very grateful to have that week, and you know we'll we'll see where where the future takes us. But I, I do just adore those people. It's it's one of the best parts I think of my job is just that that week out of the year, and so I was very very grateful. And then I I came back. And you know, I just kind of slacked off a little bit, just in terms of getting. Or, slacked off is not the term. I took some time to myself. Really, you know, it's it's not it's not easy readjusting, and you know, it wasn't the easiest week for me personally coming back. But you know, that the I have just had some time to adjust, and then start. If I have not mentioned before, start. A job for the summer, which I have not really had for the last couple of years. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to fill my time as much as I'd like to professionally. But this summer, I'll be working, and I have started working already with the Jersey Shore Blue Claws in the production room. I've done I've done some work on Instant Replay already, and I've already done some camera work, and I've already met some very very nice people there. I already I already feel very much at home. Hopefully I don't make myself too, uh, too much at home in some ways. I, I uh, you know, I, I t- tend to overstep, but I am very, very grateful, very honored to be working for an organization that is uh, really, you know, I, I would see uh, they, they are a, a source of en- entertainment that I have witnessed since, you know, I was a kid. I mean, I, our, our house down the shore is not far from there and they are, one of the premier organizations, both on and off the field, in all of minor league baseball, and obviously they're a they're a an affiliate. They're the high A ball affiliate of the defending National League champion Philadelphia Phillies. And I found it very funny because one night last week I was doing camera, and it was between it. It was out in left center field, and it was between innings. So I we weren't doing anything, there weren't any on-field promotions, and so I just turned around because there were there was Phillies trivia on the scoreboard, and I remember, I never had put two and two together, but my grandfather on my mom's side was a huge Philadelphia Phillies fan, and, you know, of course I never, you know, I say this about any team I cover or work for or any team at any level, that, you know, I'm, I'm unbiased, and I am really good at being just a neutral observer, being very. just having that journalistic integrity as a broadcaster, even someone off the air, working in a, in a more production capacity. But he was such a huge fan, and that was such a, a big part of, of my relationship with him that I really. I had never put two and two together, and I felt incredibly honored in that sense. It was one of the. Probably the most personal aspect of the job, and again, I had never, I had never figured it all out. I never, I never th- thought about why that had that part had meant so much to me to work for that team in particular. So very flattered, and I'm very, very looking forward to a, a an excellent summer. Now, we are going to try to ease back into this. I'm not going to go too deep. I'm just going to go with kind of a little evaluation of what Stanley Cup playoffs and the NBA playoffs have been so far and my predictions now to be fair my Stanley Cup playoff predictions might not age and might not have aged entirely well because of course i made them before the first game of each series were a couple of games in and a lot of a lot of expectations have been defied to this point, considering I think the Bruins and the Hurricanes were the only home teams to win Game 1, if memory serves me correctly. I'm trying to think. Because you had in the East, you had Tampa and the Rangers both won, and then in the West, it was... Yeah, in the West, all four teams on the road won Game 1. So, home ice has been flipped almost completely so far in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But we'll do it from West to East. Let's start with the Avalanche and the Kraken. The Kraken pulling off... A surprising 3-1 victory in their first ever Stanley Cup playoff game. This was in Denver. Now, to be fair, Kale McCarr did just return from injury for Game 1. Gabe Landeskog will be out for the playoffs. I have said it was, you know, it's a little different this year for Colorado when you consider also their goaltending situation is different. I don't think Yorgiev really played poorly or gave up a bad goal. But... It is a difference when you have Georgiev instead of Kemper, or Francois for that matter. And the Kraken were able to pull off a, a 3-1 win in Colorado. Avs hit the post at least once, I think, in this game. But I still said, before this game at least, I said the Avs would win the series in five games. So I'll give the Kraken credit for that. I said the ABS in five. Now, at this point, it would have to mean the ABS would win four straight. I don't know what the crowd's going to be like in Seattle. I would hope for the league's sake and for the city's sake that it's going to be crazy, but I still could see Colorado winning four straight. The The Kraken do have some guys with, with serious experience, guys like Justin Schultz, who is so integral to Pittsburgh in their deep runs, but... I still think Colorado is definitely the better team. And so, I mean, if they if they take game two, they might be a steamroller after that. So we will see. I don't think the Abs are quite as good as they were last year, but I think they are definitely good enough to get out of the first round against a rather inexperienced Kraken team that is in the playoffs for the first time. So I'll take the Abs in five. Now, Stars and the Wild. This could be one of the tightest series in the first round. These are two teams that have, I believe, battled in the postseason fairly recently anyway. And of course, there is that hate. I mean, it's almost hard to, to find uh, hatred coming from Minnesota sports fans, but there is, you would have to imagine, some sort of resent coming from Wild fans knowing the Stars used to play used to be the Minnesota North Stars. That's literally why they are called... I, I know it's the Stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas, but it's the... You know, they they are originally the North Stars, the Minnesota North, Minnesota North Stars, and so there has to be some resentment there. So, despite the fact the Wild took Game 1 in Dallas in double overtime, I am taking the Stars, I took the Stars and am taking the Stars to win this series four games to three... I think Jake Ottinger can carry this team the way he did last year. He's one of the hottest goaltenders in the league. One of the youngest goaltenders in the league is probably as important to to that roster as anyone else. This time, though, the Stars, if they get to that point, would have a Game 7 in their building. And so I think Minnesota has such good young talent. I mean, with Kirill Kaprizov in particular, that Kaprizov... Zuccarello pairing, most notably, but Dallas has the experience. They're a team that that played in the final three years ago, still has a lot of that core left. Guys like Jamie Benn, guys like, guys like Tyler Sagan, guys like Miro Haskinen, and I, I think that the Stars are still the team to beat. The Wild are bound to get over the hump eventually, but I, I think Dallas is in much better shape, and so I'll take them to win this one. Winnipeg Jets, surprising a lot of people, taking Game 1 in Vegas. Winnipeg the last team to make the playoffs. The Golden Knights, I still said, would take the series. This one isn't as tough, I think, as the Avs Kraken one, just from my perspective, at least in terms of predicting it, because I said Avs over Kraken 4-1. I said Golden Knights over Winnipeg 4-2. And so, yeah, I could see... I can see Winnipeg taking, what would that be? What would that be, taking three of the next four? I could see it and taking a game in Winnipeg. Of course, you remember the the first year of the Golden Knights' existence, they had to go through Winnipeg in the conference final, and Winnipeg had home ice. Vegas ended up beating them, though, in five games, taking a fifth game in Winnipeg. They took at least two, if not three games on the road in that series. Mark Stone returned for Vegas in Game 1. I know, I know again, Winnipeg was the last team in, but Vegas is a lot younger, and I think they have a bevy of good goaltenders. We look at, you know, we look at Thompson. I mean, we still know, you know, I don't know if he's 100%. I know, you know, you got Thompson, you've got Quick. You've got a few really solid goaltenders for Vegas, and I know Connor Hallibuck is so good for Winnipeg, but I, I think I trust the depth more. For the Golden Knights in that one. And again, Bruce Cassidy is a guy who I think was still rather unfairly fired by the Bruins. I know that look, obviously Jim Montgomery has led them to the best regular season in history in his first year there. But I mean that that's still not everything. Time still has to. Time still has to has yet to really prove the Bruins correct because, you know, ultimately, if you get knocked out in five games in the first round, it doesn't really make a difference. So I will take Vegas in that one. I think Bruce Cassidy is still a very strong coach, very experienced head coach, and that change of scenery really has done something for him. And the last one in the Western Conference, I know that, again, the road team won. The Kings took Game 1 in Edmonton. Of course, they pushed them to the brink of elimination last year, forcing a Game 7 in the first round. But I will still take the Oilers in this series. I said the Oilers four games to two as opposed to four-three because I though I know that although the Kings have certainly matured since last season, I, I Connor McDavid's had the, far and away the best year of his career, maybe the best year any player has had in the last, I don't know, quarter century and even then leon draisaitl most years would probably be a hart trophy winner as a matter of fact so i i think edmonton is much more secure in their their goaltending situation this year with skinner or at least down the stretch with skinner than they were with mike smith last year whereas you know mike smith made a lot of the big saves but just let in some really bad goals very inconsistent Skinner's numbers are not too dissimilar from Smith's but I think Edmonton is just that much stronger this year from an offensive standpoint so I'll take the Oilers so yes I gambled and lost in the Western Conference for all four series to this point because as of I of course I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon all four teams I picked I picked the four teams the four home teams in the Western Conference they all lost their first games but I still think that they will pull it out, and of course, I have to stand by myself anyway. In the Eastern Conference, I took the Bruins to sweep Florida, four games to none. I will again. I'm going to stand by all of these because I am very proud. No, uh, but I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand by all of these because I'm a man of my word. But. I don't know. After game one, a game, by the way, the Bruins won by a score of 3-1, to up one nothing in the series. I don't know. I could see, I honestly could see Florida not only taking a game or two, but maybe even winning the series. First off, Patrice Bergeron missed the first game of the series with an illness. He is believed, I, th- I think he'll return but I think the big difference on the ice in this game was the netminder for Florida, Alex Lyon. 30-year-old Alex Lyon led up at least one bad goal in this game. The one to Marchand for sure. He, he, you can argue another one of them was, was not great either. Florida outshot Boston for much of this game, if not for the game in total, I believe. I could make the argument the Panthers actually looked like the better team and so, I mean, I could—again, I'll, I'll say the Bruins, obviously on paper, the Bruins should not only win but sweep this series, but I don't know. I could see—that's that. That's one of the reasons I could see them pulling out a game or two. Also, I'm kind of a—I'm not one to tempt fate, and to quote Michael Scott, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious— and here's the thing, Bruins fans, they said this after Game 1, that's one thing, but they also said this when they, I don't think even when the game was over, but when they were about to set the regular season record for uh, for points. I, they, they were chanting, we want the cup. Now, historically speaking, I don't think that's something you should be saying until... Probably the only times you should be saying it are when you win the conference and when you win the cup. But if you're saying it this early in the postseason, I mean, that's that's really tempting fate. I don't care how good your team is. It doesn't matter how many points you have, how many wins you have. That's really tempting fate. This is the longest and most difficult postseason in all of sports. And it, you're really tempting fate. You're really getting ahead of yourself. Because the Bruins are... Uh, f- first off, they exist. So that's that, that's one reason that's <laughs> you need to be a bit frightened. But also, they're playing... They're playing another team. They're playing 18. They have any other po- opponent. They could be playing a, against a pee wee hockey team, and I would. I don't think I'd be chanting that. And then even once you, if and when you get past Florida, you still have. I mean, you still have two very dangerous teams in the Atlantic alone, in Toronto and Tampa. And then you have, in the metropolitan, whoever's coming out of there be it the Canes, the Devils, the Rangers, or the Islanders, is either a very, is a very skilled and or a very battle-tested team with good coaching. And then if, if you get out of that, you get to the final and you have one of... I Granted, again, I think the Eastern Conference is a, is a much better conference this year as it was last year, except Colorado's not as, as big a... A favorite as they were last year, but you have one of several teams that could run the table in the Western Conference: Colorado, Dallas, Edmonton. I mean, the Stars, Minnesota. Hey, even I forgot to, the the Kings, Kraken, and Jets. I, I don't. I don't think the Wild game was as surprising, but the Kings, Kraken, and Jets all stunned in one game. One. I haven't even mentioned Vegas. And so, you know, you've got two months before you have a Stanley Cup winner picked. And about six weeks before you can pick who's going to be in the final. So, I don't know, it's very audacious of Bruin fans. So, it's, I don't know. I'm taking the Bruins to sweep. I'm very flexible on that, though. So, we shall see. And... To so the other side of the Atlantic region, the Maple Leafs have somehow stunned us even further in the postseason by falling to the Tampa Bay Lightning, letting up, I believe it was, was it five goals or six in Game 1, going down 3 nothing at the end of the first period at home. And it's funny, too, because you, you would think, An incredible 12 teams finished with 100 points this year. Seattle finished with 100 points this year. And it's very surprising. You might be very surprised to find that the Tampa Bay Lightning were not one of those teams. And the Leafs were, I think, fourth in the conference? I think the Leafs had something like 100 and nine points, something to that extent. Tampa, I believe, had 96. But again, that shows you the, the postseason experience of the Lightning and just the struggles that the Leafs have had. It's still so hard to think the Toronto Maple Leafs have not won a playoff series since 2004. That being said, I said Leafs in Seven. I will take the Leafs in seven. I know last year the the Lightning stunned Toronto in Game Seven on the road, and so you would think home ice doesn't really mean anything this year. But the Leafs, if they can, if they can flip the switch and take a game in Tampa, will have home ice in this series again. I don't know. I, I just think it's almost it's almost boomer bust for the Leafs this year because I mean they traded for Ryan O'Reilly. That's a guy who's supposed to put them over the top. It's a guy who's won the Conn Smythe before. Was crucial to St. Louis's success. And can and can finally allow them to beat Tampa. That can they finally exercise the Demons and get into the first get out of the first round. I think yes, or at least I thought yes. A little perturbed after in my thinking after game one, but I said leafs in seven. This could be a very long series. I'll say I'll continue to say leafs in seven. Let's keep it going with the seven game series. I'll take Carolina over the Islanders in seven. Canes leading one nothing after a two-one win on Monday. Special teams will be huge in this series as the Canes were excellent on the power play in Game 1, really uplifting thing. I will say Andrei Svechnikov out for the playoffs, but started the siren for the Canes before Game 1. And, you know, you look at this. I think Sorokin is better than Ronta. Sorokin should be a Vezina finalist this year. Hockey News has actually listed him as the Vezina, pro- projected Vezina winner. I think Sorokin is better than Ronta, but... The truth is, even in, maybe more so in the games they lost, Ronto really showed up for Carolina last year. And I, I think he is showing up for a better team. I think the Canes are a better team. I think they have a better coach in Rod Brindamore. I might say differently if Barry Trotz was still the Islanders' head coach. And the Canes have a, a great home ice. Now, the I mean, technically it's not really going to... I guess playing on the road is not really going to matter if they play as well as at home as they did for the vast majority of the playoffs last year. But if the Canes want to win the Stanley Cup, they're they're probably going to have to steal at least a game on the road in this postseason. So they remember they were they won their first seven home games in the playoffs last year. Of course, they lost their last one, but they won their first seven. But they also lost all six of their playoff games on the road. So uh, it's a question of what they can do on home ice and can, can they get can they give themselves a margin of error? But the Islanders are very, these are two very tough defensive teams that play very good postseason hockey but I will take the Canes because of the the home ice advantage. I know Matt Barzal is back for the Islanders. He's probably as crucial to them as any skater, and probably any player save for maybe Sorokin, but I will take the Canes in this series in seven. The Rangers stole game one in Newark against the Devils on Tuesday night by a score of 5-1. to I took them in 7 I will take them in 7 That being said if they take I mean if they if they take game 2 in Newark this series could be a lot, over a lot more quickly than we might have all once thought This may be a must-win game for the De- I know there's you know there's a difference between a must-win game and being down 3 games to none and you know a must-win in you know you're down one nothing at home but this might be a must-win game for the Devils this was actually a much tighter regular season series than, than some numbers might say. The Devils won the regular season series 3-1 with one overtime loss. However, the Rangers lost two of those games by a goal and another by two with an empty netter. The one game the Devils lost was in overtime, as a matter of fact. So each team lost one of those games in overtime. So in essence, you had four one-goal games between these two teams. Now, look, the advantages here for the Rangers, I think they are... Well, I think it is pretty fair to say they are more experienced. I think it's also fair to say they are better defensively. I I think they they do have the better goaltender in Shosturkin than they do in Vanacek. But Shosturkin, of course, has not been nearly as good as he was last year when he won the Vezina Trophy, but he's still had a very strong season. I think Vanacek has played a little more to the score. He's played... uh, played more behind a better offensive system. And then another positive for the Rangers is, and this was probably close to true last, uh, last night or Tuesday night, that they will probably make up about half the fans at the Prudential Center. While there will be Devil fans in the building at the Garden, but I think they'll make up a much smaller minority. That's what it's been historically. And it's not because the Devils don't have a great fan base. They do, or, or a good home ice, but... Because you know the Rangers are an original 16; they've been around a lot longer, and you know it's just been passed down more through the generations. It's more ingrained. So you know you look at the Rangers, and they have fans in New Jersey, on Long Island, Westchester, Connecticut, etc. It's it, you know, and they travel well. You look at it. Look at it around the original six. Bruin fans travel well. Red Wing fans travel well. Blackhawk fans travel very well. Leafs fans travel well, Habs fans travel very well. And so it it's, not, it it's not uncommon for close to half that building to be Ranger fans when these two teams face off. Even though it's been a even though it's one of the best rivalries in recent memory in this sport, it is true. So I mean, if there's one team you want to play on the road as the Rangers, it's not from a skill point standpoint necessarily. But from a home ice standpoint, it's probably the Devils. Now, what I find funny about this series, actually, is you look at it over the years and you look at the most successful Devil teams, they were so predicated on defense. They had the best goaltender in history, Martin Brodeur. I was actually surprised, I didn't, I didn't even think about it, that this is the first Rangers-Devils playoff series without Martin Brodeur. However, there there is a little bit of an asterisk on that one in that the first series between these two teams in 92, I think Brodeur played, but Chris Terreri was really really the starting goaltender for the Devils in that series. But still, it is unbelievable to think. But the Devils have, you know, you look at their best you look at their, their five retired numbers and Hall of Fame goaltender in Brodeur, Hall of Fame, pretty defensive defenseman in Scott Stevens, Hall of Fame defenseman in Scott Niedermeyer, a career Defensive defenseman in Kandanico, Danico, a, a career devil. And then you have a great, he's a forward, but a great two-way player in Patrick Eliash, and a guy who I argue probably should be in the Hall of Fame. But very defensive-minded. Whereas you look at the Devils now, and dating back to at least last year, this is probably the, the strongest offense they have ever had. And it's a very dissimilar style from what they had when they were winning the Stanley Cup three times in a span of, what, nine seasons. And the the thing is with the Rangers, the Rangers almost have to play an old devil's style of hockey, where they have to just play almost sort of a trap-style defense, clog up the neutral zone, and just hit anybody who touches the puck in a red uniform, at least in Newark in a red uniform, a, a white uniform in New York. But they were able to do that. They did that successfully. The Devils were... The, the Devils looked stronger offensively for much of that game. But I think the Rangers limited their chances. And so the Rangers also did an incredible job of shot blocking. Much like the, the Rangers in 2012 that ultimately lost to the Devils in the conference final. The last time they faced each other in a postseason series. But... I mean that—that that was the MO of those John Tortorella-led Rangers teams that were all about shot blocking. So it's—it's it's a very historically reminiscent series. But it—it's going to be a really fun one, and maybe the best series out of all of them, I might argue, in the first round, maybe maybe even in the the whole playoffs. Rangers and Devils should be a fun one. I will say the Rangers will win this one in seven games. Now, moving on to the NBA. This time we'll go east to west. The Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat. I took the Bucks. Well, to be fair, I did make these picks a little after the playoffs actually started. So, I I don't know if I would have said this, if not for what happened in game one, but I'm taking the Bucks to beat the Heat in seven games, as opposed to, I don't know, maybe I would have said like five, if not for Giannis going down in game one. I know Tyler Hero also went down, but Giannis going down and the Heat pulling off the win. Here's the thing though, Uh, Milwaukee was without Giannis, but again, the Heat were without Tyler Hero and still won the game on the road. That's why I think this series is going to go as long as it will. I still think the Bucks will win the series, but it is nice to see that there is a really good one-eight matchup. There has been a very unconvincing two-seven matchup between the Celtics and the Hawks. I know the Celtics are very experienced, and very fundamentally sound, well coached, and have a great home court. But this was this the like game one for the most part was very lopsided. I don't think the score even indicated that as much as it actually was. Uh, Boston dominated the boards in Game 1 and cruised to victory. The Celtics also dominated from 3, shot over 39% from downtown. They allowed only about 17% from 3. And so I I think the Celtics are going to pull off a clean sweep in this one. The Sixers and the Nets. You know, I understand that as I record this, the Sixers are up two games to none. And the games have been not necessarily lopsided, but, you know, they've been fairly, pretty much in Philadelphia's favor. But, you know, first off, the Nets held the Sixers to only 96 points in Game 2, which even for a loss is pretty impressive, especially in this day and age. And I think, you know what, I have more belief in them since, since the trade deadline since trading away Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, firing Nash, getting rid of, frankly, the toxicity within the organization. They have played as much more of a cohesive unit, and they have a guy in Spencer Dinwiddie who was already very important to the organization before that whole transition. They, they still have a good three-point shooter in Joe Harris. They are... And I think Jacques Vaughn is just a very reasonable, smart, I think more self-deprecating head coach. And this is just a more relaxed team, I think. And there's not so much hype and pressure. And and there there are the egos that there were before. So I think this will be much more of a series than than two nothing indicates I'll still take the Sixers because they have dominated on the boards and Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey have taken over. The, the Nets have really, the, you know, I was talking to to, uh, to someone the other day about you know the Nets had really started to double Joel Embiid, but he was still hauling down boards and even though he wasn't scoring as much, that just allows Maxey or you know Tobias Harris to play much better from the outside, get some open looks. So I'll take the Sixers. But I think the Nets will steal a couple of games here. I, I, I'll take the I will take the Sixers in six games to win this series. Five versus four, the Knicks versus the Cavaliers. The Knicks pulling out a 101-97 win in Game One. The Cavaliers with a blowout victory in Game Two. The Knicks took the regular season series three to one they won the rebounding battle by 13 in game 1 and took that really defensive battle despite allowing 38 points to Donovan Mitchell. Now Donovan Mitchell not as strong on the scoreboard in game 2, he put up 17, but he also had a double-double head double digits in assists, so he was probably even more important. So I will take the Knicks in this series to win it 4 games to 2. They have flipped it for home court. It is going to be Crazy. I I don't think there were that many Knicks fans in the building in Cleveland, but I think it's going to be much more of a home court for the Knicks than it will be for Cleveland. Julius Randle has played well into that number two role. He's finally settled a little bit. Not not the physical number two, but in terms of just a scorer, he's been a number two guy, taking a back seat to Jalen Brunson. Settled into that role well. He's rebound. I mean, he got a big rebound at the end of game one. He has scored quite a bit. Josh Hart really did a good job in Game 1 in particular, although I don't think he was at 100% for Game 2. R.J. Barrett played well defensively in Game 1. Cleveland shot better from 3 in Game 1, but the Knicks just shot better from the free throw line. And it's funny because for much of the early portion of Game 1, this is a fairly even game. The Cavs just pulled away over the course of the evening. And I also think there's going to be some bad blood going into Game Three after the foul by Jarrett Allen on Julius Randle. Because Jarrett Allen is right in that it was a basketball play, but that's ultimately that's just not a play that should be made in a 20-point game with two minutes left. And I think this was Reggie Miller who was saying this, and he's right that you know Randle should not be in the game at that point. It's true. But the fact is, Allen should also not be in the game at that point, and I think regardless, that's probably a foul that should not be committed, even by you know someone who's just trying to get minutes off the bench. But that wasn't the, the, the case here. These were two starters in a 20-point game with two minutes left, and this was a hard foul. I don't think it was really that bad until I saw kind of the follow-through from Allen's leg. Unfortunately, Randall was all right, but it is going to be very intense, in Game 3 and 4 in New York. Game 5 in Cleveland, and we'll see if it goes any further. I'm taking the Knicks in six games. Moving to the West, I, I think the Nuggets are going to pull off a clean sweep of the Timberwolves. They blew them out in Game 1. The T-Wolves survived the play-in despite the whole Gobert incident at the end of the regular season. Uh, they are they clearly no match For Jokic, a guy who I think probably should win the MVP, although it's no lock with the way Giannis and Embiid have played this year, but I think the the stats lean toward Jokic. They're clearly no match for Jokic or Jamal Murray, and the Timberwolves scored only 80 points in the first game of this series. I think the this might be the most lopsided series out of all of them, save for, you know what, I didn't think Celtics Hawks was going to be as lopsided as it has been so far in the first two games, that might, but that might be more. But this, this definitely should be the the toughest. I mean, the, the easiest series for one team in the West, Lakers and Grizzlies. You know, I mean, I say this from from a sort of karmaic standpoint. I, but I mean, I think before the the whole incident with John ja Morant, with, with John ja Morant, that, that led to his suspension. I probably would have taken the Grizzlies. But the Lakers, not only after that incident, but also after stealing the first game of this series in Memphis, I will take them to edge the Grizzlies four games to three just to eke out this series victory. Now, look, LeBron was not in peak form in game one, but he played well enough. He had over 21. I think he had a double-double, if memory serves me correctly. But the performances of Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura really helped the Lakers pull away at the end of Game 1. Just go on a huge run at the end of this game, flipping home court, and plus John Morant, just physically speaking, is not 100%. So, again, I think this kind of speaks to a couple of the series in the East. I think this, this speaks to the Bucks Heat series in particular, that it's nice to see in this case, a 2-7 series, be a lot more evenly matched. I know it's, you know, the last couple of years it's been a little more fluky that the Lakers or the Warriors are lower seeds, and it's been due in large part to injury, but it's true. It's very good. I'll take the Lakers in this one. Warriors and the Kings. I know it's 2-0 Sacramento, going to San Francisco, but I'm still taking the Warriors. I'm aware the Kings took the first two games in Sacramento, but the Warriors lost those two games by a combined 11 points. And, I mean, there's still... I think there's still probably going to be enough of a road presence for the Warriors in Sacramento. That's not a long drive. Curry still played well. He's averaging 29 a game through the first two. And I think... The the one other thing I can say against the Kings is it was just a bad look for them. They were very careless on their final possession of Game 1. And and Curry was able to get that shot off. They were very careless on that final possession leading to their free throw attempts. De'Aaron Fox has gone off, but I, I don't know. I'm still taking the Warriors. One thing, of course, that can be said the other way is obviously Draymond Green And the cause for suspension. Now here's the thing going through this play. So, I agree that Draymond Green is being held. I don't think it's intentional by Sabonis, who did play quite well, by the way. Just just as an aside, did, did rebound very well in the first game. I don't think it was intentional by Sabonis. It doesn't look like he's in a place where he's intending to hold on to him. I think he's kind of grimacing a little bit. And... I think in some ways, Green's play is instinctual. Now, of course, Green is also going to be judged more harshly because he certainly has a bad reputation in this league. He's created created it for himself. But, I mean, it's not... It is a little bit of a dirty play. Now, look, he's being held. I don't think it's intentional by Sabonis. They did ultimately call a tech on both guys, I think. The thing is, though, Green could also pull away from him, whereas he kind of pulls into him. Like, he, he could take a step away from him, but he kind of steps a little further into him. Now, that is instinctual, again, just to... Kind of step on Sabonis because you you don't want to be restricted, but I get it. I think I don't know. It's I think it was right to suspend him, and I think one game is probably fair because I don't think it was quite entirely intentional, if that makes any sense. But it is still rather apropos of his career. I think Green is being judged. He's being judged in part on his past. Now, if someone like... Like, if this happens with Steph Curry, I don't know if there's a suspension. There's maybe an ejection. I don't know if there's a suspension. But it is a bad play. It's a dirty play. I don't think Sabonis really intends to hold him. I think that was also instinctual, but I think it was just also two guys, in essence, that were actually a victim of circumstance. So, I don't know. I think I think the Warriors can are still deep enough, strong enough, talented enough to take this one. Game 3 is going to be the biggest game of the series, probably. And at least up to that point. If the Warriors can pull off a win without Green, even if it's at home, that's a huge boost. Now moving on to Clippers and the Suns. I'm leaning toward Phoenix. I know I know the Suns may have KD. The Clippers, by the way, as I record this, are up one game to none. But the Suns, I think, still may take a little time to mesh with him. Leonard went off for 38 in game one. And I you know I base a lot of my thoughts on just a historical standpoint. But when the Suns lost last year in game seven to Dallas in the second round. That was to a Dallas team, even with Jalen Brunson there. That was, I think, had an inferior roster to that of the Clippers this season. And I think, uh, frankly, I I also think the Clippers are kind of due after two years ago, where they took they pushed the Suns to six games in the conference final without Kawhi Leonard. So I'm I'm taking the Clippers to pull this one out. It's going to be a fun, fun postseason. A couple more things to discuss. Just within the MLB, of course, the the Tampa Bay Rays, having lost a couple in a row, but having won 13 in a row to start their season, tying an MLB record with the 1987 Milwaukee Brewers and the 1982 Atlanta Braves. It should be noted, I just want to point out, neither of those teams actually made the playoffs. Despite that, However, only four teams made the playoffs in each season at the time. So, should be noted. But then you also go back the other way, and I start to think of the 84 Tigers who started, I think, 25-5. and five. I think they won, they definitely won under 100 games, 100 games. Again, this was also a time when only four teams got into the playoffs, but this could be a point where the Rays, even though they're still in a very... A very good American League East where the Yankees are probably the team to beat. The Orioles improved significantly. The Blue Jays have so much young talent. We'll see about the Red Sox. They've been off to a decent start. It it could be a point where the Rays still ultimately can just kind of cruise into the playoffs. Again, though, it is a marathon, not a sprint. But I, I also kind of go back to... I forget the exact quote, but it's the line in. it's not even a line in Moneyball. It's it's take it's taken from a real clip when the A's win twenty in a row. And and of course I'm referring to the movie Moneyball here, but it's when Bob Costa says you could play these twenty games a hundred times, and they and they could and ninety nine times out of a hundred they could go a different way. That that it's almost it's you know it, it, part of it is talent, but also part of it is luck. It, there's a randomness to it. And so that's that, That's part of that aspect. That's part of the game itself. And again, it's also weird because we have so many significant changes, but ultimately the Tampa Bay Rays are also one of the more progressive organizations in the league because of such a budget that they have that they leaned into that Moneyball theory and they've, they've leaned into New Age thinking as much as any other organization because I think they might actually be the only organization with a lower payroll than the Oakland A's. But it's working for them right now, not really working for Oakland in the last year or so. So it's really, really fascinating just to see that play out and, and kind of see history repeat itself. couple more things, just talking about football before we close out here. First off, Jalen Hurts agreeing to that five-year, $255 million deal with the Eagles. $179.304, to be exact, million dollars of that is guaranteed. That makes him the highest-paid player in NFL history. It is also, this one I was very surprised about, the first no-trade clause in Eagles history. So, I mean, this, this is a guy who... Certainly earned it. I know... You go back a couple of years, and he was very different under Doug Peterson. Really didn't get as much playing time under Doug Peterson. He's done so much more with Nick Sirianni. I know he's... Look, he's finally gotten such much-needed tools in A.J. Brown in particular, a guy who really elevated his game. He has a much deeper receiving core. It's going to be... Different now that with, with Miles Sanders gone, but th- this is still a very dangerous Eagles offense. And this is a guy in, in Hertz who stepped up, was a serious MVP candidate this year. Got the Eagles to the Super Bowl for, what, the first time in six years? No, five years. And only the fourth time in their history. And nearly led them to victory he's one of the best with a possible exception of Lamar Jackson he is quite possibly the best two-way quarterback in the game today this is a guy who wherever at Alabama we thought you know he wasn't the guy he was just a one-dimensional quarterback he was just a rushing quarterback and then Tua Tagovailoa came in and won the won the national championship after coming in at halftime in the in the title game against Georgia and then Hertz made a name for himself at Oklahoma. Just reinvented himself, and even after a couple of years in the NFL with the Eagles, made a name for himself as more than just a more than just you know an option quarterback. He's a very very strong quarterback. Now, is is he good enough to be the highest paid quarterback in the league? Is he the best quarterback in the league? I wouldn't necessarily say so, but a lot of people would argue that he was the better quarterback in the Super Bowl. In many ways, he was. I mean, the didn't tur- turn over the football. I think that fumble was what ultimately killed them because that was similar to Josh Johnson in the NFC Championship game where he just flat-out lost it, and the Chiefs ran it back for a touchdown. But he was excellent in that game. First quarterback ever to run for three touchdowns in a single Super Bowl. And he did it well through the air as well. So he is, uh, d- despite us probably thinking the other way before – before this year, I think, he is the future of the Philadelphia Eagles, and they made a significant investment in him. And one last piece of just really, really good news. Demar Hanlon cleared to return to football activities, and he is apparently ready, ready and willing to return to the playing field. There are some people who would say that it would not be safe for him to come back, but you have to admire his courage. He said his his story is not over on the playing field, and we also have to take really take this victory first off. You know, you saw a play like that. The fact that it delayed, it really canceled a game. It ended a game. The fact that he could even get up again, that he could walk again, that he was. Alive and healthy was just an absolute blessing, just a, just a wonderful, wonderful thing for which we could all be very grateful. And yeah, I, I know some people might think that it might be dangerous for him to return the field, to return to the field, and it is a risk. But then again, everything is a risk, and if it's the game he loves, then credit to him. I hope, I hope he does everything he can to protect himself and the the Bills and the league will do everything they can to protect him. But his story, just the the bounce back, not him getting hurt, but the bounce back was one of the feel-good stories of this last NFL season. And so wish him nothing but the absolute best. So that does it for us this week. So happy to have you back, so happy to be back on this microphone, and we'll see you again next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.